morning. Happy Mother's Day. Thanks. Uh, today, we honored our mothers with that uh, video. just want to thank Anthony and Ashley and Sarah who putting that together for us. But I was a little bummed because uh, I didn't make the video. I wasn't up there. So I'd like to just take a moment and personally honor uh, my mother, Judy Wools. When I was young, she protected me and provided for me and, of course, disciplined me. And when I got older, she continued to love me and support me and rarely disciplined me. Uh, Thanks, Mom, for all you've done and continue to do in my life and the life of my family. And special thanks uh, for me and the church for taking care of our uh, PowerPoints and videos and stuff. So thank you. Mom, now, what I just said about my mom and that the video we saw earlier, the Mother's Day video, are examples of what it means to honor someone. When we honor someone, uh, we praise them for who they are. We praise them for what they've done. We make it clear to them just how important they are to us. And certainly our mothers deserve a great deal of honor. The Bible even commands us to honor our fathers and our mothers. But there's someone someone else who we've been honoring in our singing who deserves even more honor than our moms, than our parents. Someone who deserves all honor and all glory that we can offer plus, plus more. And that someone is, of course, God, our creator, our sustainer, our ultimate protector and provider, our Savior, and our Lord. But all too often, we fail to honor God as He deserves. We fail by the way we live and by the words we say to acknowledge His infinite value. We not only don't honor Him as He deserves, but instead we often dishonor Him. And that's what we find in our passage for today, specifically The Apostle Paul will show us how his his Jewish brethren dishonored God. And it's my prayer that we can learn from this negative example that he's going to give us. That God will use his word to convict our hearts. That we will come away understanding not only how we as believers dishonor God, but also how we can grow in our ability to instead Bring him on a daily basis, moment by moment basis, all the honor and glory that he deserves. So we're currently in Romans chapter 2. If you want to look at a Bible, there's Bibles in front of you, or the verses will be up on the screen, thanks to my mom. Yay, mom. In chapter 1 of Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul declared the unrighteousness of the sinfulness of the Gentile world. And in chapter 2, he's doing the same thing uh, for the Jewish world. His purpose is to show that all people, Jews and Gentiles, are unrighteous before God. And therefore, all people need the righteousness of God provided to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never forget, Paul's purpose is to lead people to the gospel. Last week in verse 11 through 16 of chapter 2, Paul assured us that God shows no partiality, that he will judge the Jews and the Gentiles on the same basis. Paul then, in, in verses 17 
to 29, the end of the chapter, turns again to addressing the Jews specifically. We'll look at uh, 17 through 24 this week and then 25 through 29 next week. I want to begin by reading our passage for today. Uh, Romans chapter 2, 17 through 24. Paul writes, after he said, I show no partiality, Jews, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now in these verses, Paul has some pretty harsh words uh, for the Jews. And before we look at these words, I want to make sure we understand the point behind them. I want to, uh, again, avoid us getting the wrong idea. I'm currently in the middle of reading a book titled Reclaiming Israel's History by a man named David Brog. The book's purpose is really to defend Israel's right to exist as a nation. The author recounts Israel's history from the time of the Roman Empire uh, to uh, up to present day. And the thing that stood out to me is the almost continual conquest and persecution and anti-Semitism that the Jewish people have endured. When we think of anti-Semitism, we often start and stop at the uh, Holocaust of Nazi Germany. But throughout history, there's been a terrible mistreatment of Jewish people in their own land just because they were Jewish. From the time of the Roman Empire to the Byzantian Empire, the the, the Persian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, to present day, the Jews have experienced conquest, anti-Semitism, persecution from pagans, from Christians, and Muslims. And therefore, I don't want us to get the wrong idea about this passage. I don't want us to read any kind of anti-Semitism into Paul, what he says in chapter 2. This is certainly not his purpose. For Paul himself was a Jew. The apostles were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. In Romans chapter 9, verse 3, Paul proclaims his great love for his fellow Jews when he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul was willing to be accursed, cut off from Christ, if, his, if, his, uh, if the unbelieving Jews, his brothers, his kinsmen, could come to know Christ. The point of Paul's message in Romans chapter 2 is not that the Jews are the worst of sinners. Remember, he's already shown the sinfulness, the depravity of the Gentiles in chapter 1. His point is to show that both Jews and Gentiles are unrighteous before God. All people unrighteous before God. And when it comes to the Jews, he wants to make sure they understand that despite being God's chosen people, They, like the Gentiles, are sinners in need of salvation provided through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's really a wake-up call. As we'll see, they're trusting in one thing, and Paul wants them to see, no, you need to trust in the gospel. 
So beginning in verse 17, Paul speaks directly to the Jewish world. And in verses 17 through 20, he speaks directly about their, the, their privilege of receiving the law. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, this begins a description of how a typical Jewish person would, would think of themselves. He's really, he's really setting up this argument. He's, he's like relating to them right now. Being a Jew meant you were part of God's covenant people. You were chosen, set apart by God. And through Moses, you had received God's law. And you relied on the law. That phrase, rely on the law, is key for us to understand what Paul is saying. The Jews relied on the fact that God had given them his law. It was a key sign to them that they were God's people. And that was something they boasted about. They boasted that God had chosen them. He'd chosen them to receive his law. And because of that, God would save them. They were relying on God's gift of the law for their salvation even. Paul continues in verse 18. And know his will. So if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and you know his will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law, because they were instructed from the law, they had the law, they believed they could know the will of God. They could judge and approve what things and actions and attitudes were excellent. Verse 19, and if, and if you're, you, you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, because they had the law, they believed they, they could guide those who didn't have the law, specifically the Gentiles. They saw the Gentile world as blind because it was at, without the law of God. They saw themselves as the one who possess, ones who possessed the light of God's law. Verse 20, as instructors of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. The law was the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Therefore, they believed they could instruct the foolish, the Gentiles, and the children. And not necessarily they're talking about their own children. They're talking that word could also be translated uh, childish. They could instruct the, the, the foolish, the childish. Now, if you're a Jew, in Paul's day at least, you would say, right on, Paul, preach it. They're relating to what he's saying here. Yes, we are Jews and we are God's chosen people. We've been given and instructed in God's law. Therefore, we know his will. We can approve what is excellent. We're a guide to the blind. We bring the light. We can instruct the foolish and teach the childish because we've been given the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Amen and amen. And you might think, and they did think, okay, we, the Jews, are, are good to go. You know, what, we need, you need to direct your attention over there to the Gentiles. We rely on the law to make us good with God, to provide us with salvation. But Paul continues, so he's sort of setting them up, and now he drops the hammer. He points out a, a major problem in their logic, the problem of relying on the law. They relied on the law. They saw themselves as the receivers and then the teachers of the law. But then in verse 21, Paul writes, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? This begins a series of four questions. Paul's pointing out the problem of relying on the law. And so he, he calls the Jews out. 
Yes, you have the law. Yes, the law is, is light in the darkness. Yes, the law is the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And yes, you should teach those without the law, what the law says. But the fullness of the law, which we're not going to get into, but the fullness of the law also included faith, trust in God. You should bring the wisdom of God to foolish humanity. But more importantly than teaching the law, you must be taught by the law. You must not just read it and study it and memorize it and even pass it on, but instead you must let the law impact your life. You must teach yourself. If you're going to rely on the law, then you must live the law. If you're going to rely on the law, then you have to live the law. You must not only be a hearer of the word, but a doer. Otherwise, you're just a hypocrite. Paul then gives three examples of hypocrisies, stating them as questions. He's saying, you rely on the law, but do you actually keep the law? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say uh, that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? The first two examples, stealing, adultery, are clear. But the third, robbing temples, needs a little explanation. Paul's not talking about uh, the Jewish people robbing the temple of God, their own temple. He's talking about robbing of pagan temples, Greek and Roman temples. Robbing temples was a common crime in the ancient world because temples had expensive articles that could be sold for profit. Paul's saying, you hate idols, and you should, but do you then steal them for pagan temples? This was not only stealing, but it was stealing that which the law forbid them to have. And it was stealing from a place, a pagan temple, where the law forbid them to go. The robbing of the pagan temples would involve not just stealing, but but self-defilement as well. Now, I'm sure there were Jews that could have answered no to all three of these specific questions. Jews who had never stolen, never committed adultery, never robbed a temple in their life. But that's not Paul's point. His point is really twofold. His point is that there are some Jews who've done these things. That the Jews as a people have committed these particular sins. That even though they as a people claim to rely on the law, they as a people break it in these specific ways. But more importantly, Paul's point is that these are just examples. These are just three examples of what the law teaches. And all Jews at some point violate the law they rely on. They sort of cut their feet out from under them. They're relying on the law, but they're violating the law. Paul is saying that relying on the law does not mean just having the law or even being an instructor of the law. It means doing the law. It means obeying the law. Just having the law does not make you righteous. It will not spare you from God's judgment. Just because you're a Jew, just because you've received the law, God judges impartially. He's already established that. The Jews had received all this revelation and all this light and all this knowledge and all this truth. And the fact that they had received it was what they were relying on. They were relying on the fact they had received it. But the problem was they weren't obeying it. Now, let me be very clear here. The problem was not only that the Jews didn't keep the law that they had been given. The problem was they were relying on the law for their salvation, but were unable to keep it. 
They were treating their, their Jewishness, their chosenness, and their possession of the law as if that was a, 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 a salvation card, a get-out-of-judgment-free card. Paul then goes on to point out the result of relying on and teaching of the law without keeping it. We see the, the product, the result. I had to have a P, so I did product. Okay, thanks. The product of breaking the law. Verse 23. You who boast in the law, the Jews are relying on boasting in the law. They're taking pride in the fact that they alone have received the law. And they believe that because they had received the law, they would be saved. But Paul says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. They boast in the law, but at the same time, They break the law. And the product, the result of this, is is a dishonoring of God. That word dishonor means to cause, to be infamous, to despise, to defame, to put to shame. By boasting in and breaking the law, they bring dishonor, shame upon God. Paul then expands on this uh, this idea of dishonor to God by quoting from uh, Isaiah 52.5. For it is written, in Isaiah 52, 5, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The dishonor Paul refers to is that God's reputation among the, the nations, the Gentiles, is being damaged, is damaged. God's name is blasphemed, blasphemed among the Gentiles. The nations, the, the other peoples, the non-Jews, look at the Jews who claim to be the people of God, who claim to have the law of God who claim to be the light. And when the Jews clearly break that same law that they are teaching, that they're boasting in, it causes the nations to blaspheme, to speak against, to speak evil of their God. And this was exactly the opposite of why God had chosen the Jews to be his people. In Jeremiah chapter 13, 11, God says, I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, and for glory. The Jewish people were chosen for the honor of God, to be his representatives among the nations. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God comes to Abraham. He says, hey, Abe, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make you a great people. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I'm going to bless you. Why? That you might be a blessing to the nations. To display God's majesty and his beauty and his greatness and his trustworthiness. To show forth who God is among the nations. That that he would be praised and he would be glorified. But instead... Throughout their history, as we saw in our last year's study, if you were with us, they lived as if God and His law were unimportant, of little to no value. They broke His law. They followed after false gods, other gods. And the result was that God's name was blasphemed among the Gentiles. God was ridiculed. His reputation was belittled. God was dishonored because those who boasted in the law were breaking the law. And what I want us to see, maybe the main point I want us to see here this morning, is that in Paul's mind, 
in the, the pages of the Bible, the dishonoring of God is the most heinous, appalling, the worst product of our sin, the worst of sin. We already saw in chapter 1 of Romans how the pagan Gentiles dishonor God. Romans one twenty one. for although they knew God, God had revealed himself to them, to the world, through his creation. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. God reveals himself to his people, to his creation, but we reject him. We dishonor him. We turn from him and and turn to uh, images, to carvings that we make. The Gentile world dishonors God by rejecting him and replacing him with idols, with with other things. And now we see uh, that by boasting in the law and then breaking the law, the Jewish world also dishonors God. And what we need to understand is that dishonoring God is really the essence of sin. It's a direct violation of the purpose for which God created everything, that, for which God created each and every one of us. Isaiah 43, 7 states, Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I form, whom I formed and made. We, Jews, Gentiles, were created specifically for the purpose of honoring and glorifying God. And therefore, when we dishonor him, when we violate the very heart of his will in our lives, John Piper said, sin at its heart is the feeling and thinking and acting that treats God as less than glorious, that fails to honor God as he deserves. We see this in the definition of sin that Paul gives in Romans 3.23. He writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we sin, we are falling short of the glory of God. We are not fulfilling our purpose. We are not glorifying God in how we live and what we do and who we trust in. We're showing that God is not our highest value. Instead, we're treating something else or or someone else or most often our own self as more valuable than God and his will. This is true in all sin. When we sin, when we disregard the word and the will of God in pursuit of our own selfish desires, then we are above all else dishonoring God. And we need to hear this today. Because the world wants us to think, uh, when we think of sin, if we think of it at all, as an offense against other people, not God. Sin is when, we, when man is hurt, not when God is dishonored. Sin is when I'm abused, not when God is dishonored. Sin is when I'm threatened, not when God is dishonored. We need to hear Paul's God-centered understanding of sin and of righteousness. We need to understand that at its heart, all sin is not just against a finite, unrighteous humanity, but also against an infinitely holy and righteous God. And we need to understand that it's, it's only through receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can be made righteous before this infinitely righteous and holy God. That again is, is the direct application from this passage. To see that no matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, whether, you, whether you've received the law of God or not, when you sin, 
When you fall short of God's glory, when you dishonor God, you are therefore subject to the wrath of God. And therefore, you must turn to God in repentance and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the point that Paul continues to drive home. And that's always the first application. Repent. Turn to God. Trust in Christ. Receive the righteousness of God by by trusting in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for your sin. Amen? Okay. But this morning, I I want us to conclude by thinking uh, about how this passage also applies to us, to us as Christians. So this was written to the Jews, written over 2,000 years ago. How does it apply to those who've responded to the gospel? How does it, what are the implications for Christians? Paul began by talking about the, the Jews' privileges, okay? Uh, the privilege of receiving the law. Now let me ask this question and, and feel free to answer. Uh, what privileges do we as Christians receive? What privileges do we as Christians receive? Eternal life, that's awesome. That's a pretty big one. What else? The Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do when he comes into our life? Changes. We get this changing, transforming Holy Spirit in our life. He convicts us of sin, and then he empowers us to overcome our sin. What else? Forgiveness from our sins. Amen. Joy. Keep it coming. There's one, there's one that's directly related to what the Jews received. I mean, this is all good. Uh, and we received it as well, plus more. What did we receive? Grace and, somebody said it, mercy and truth in the Word of God. Okay. Oh, man. The complete Word of God. We have it all, right? We have what the Jews had. We have the law, and then we have the prophets, and we have the Psalms, and we have the Gospels, and the epistles. We have an amazing amount, plus uh, grace and mercy and the love of God and salvation and eternal life. We have uh, a relationship with God, right? Remember what Jesus said uh, in uh, Revelation 3? I stand at the door and knock. If anybody open the door, I'll come in and, and sup with him and fellowship with him and eat with him. We have uh, Christ. So we Christians are, are very privileged, wouldn't you say? Maybe even more than the Jews? Yes? Okay. Remember that. Paul also talked about the fact that the Jews were relying on the law for their salvation. Now, for them, this was a problem because they could not keep the law. So, second question. What do Christians rely on for salvation? Jesus. Faith. Keep going. Grace. God's mercy. We hope. We have a future hope in the promises of God from his word. Jesus, let's let's expand on that a little bit. The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. His substitutionary death for us on the cross, right? 
the grace and mercy and love of God. And, and, and in fact, it's not the law, uh, not our own abilities. We can't earn it. It's a free gift. For by grace we're saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works. Okay, so we as believers have these great privileges, and we rely not on the law, but we rely on the gospel of grace for salvation. Now, finally, Paul asks about the fact that the Jews, by boasting in the law and then breaking the law, dishonor God. And, and our final question, therefore, is, and this one isn't the fun one, how do Christians dishonor God? Anybody want to take a shot at that one? Sin. That's the overarching sin, right? Falling short of God's glory. By treating other things, other people, our own self, as more valuable than God. I'm just giving some, some definition at the heart of sin. By, by boasting in the gospel, that's a maybe. Our salvation by grace. I'm saved by grace. Amen. And yet, not relying on the gospel to transform our lives. That dishonors God. I'm saved. I got this free gift. I'm trusting in the gospel for my salvation, but I'm, re- I'm not trusting in the gospel to, for my life now. I'm not trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform me and, and to empower me through the power of his spirit to defeat the sin in my life. By thinking or acting as if our salvation by grace means... Uh, and, we talked about this in our Bible study the other uh, One of the people there said, do people do this? By, by thinking that our salvation by grace means that there are no consequences to our sin. And I said, well, maybe nobody says that, but we all do that. You know, uh, we're saved by grace, so I, I can do this sin. And, and then I'll ask for forgiveness. That's dishonoring to God. Believing that because of grace and forgiveness, sin is no longer important to God. Believing that we can engage in sin as long as we can make sure we ask for forgiveness. All of this under the heading of sin, under devaluing God and his holiness, all of this dishonors God. And I want to leave us this morning with a a story to drive this, to help us see how our sin Maybe, maybe magnified, but it's going to apply on the, it applies on the macro sin and the micro sin as well. How our sin uh, dishonors God. But I want to be clear, uh, for my sake, for the sake of my wife, this is not based on a true story. Okay? But I'm going to use myself as an example because I don't want to offend anyone else. Uh, also, I do this because I've received all these privileges that we've talked about. Uh, I've received and I've read and I've studied the Word of God. I even teach the Word of God on a regular basis. I rely on the gospel of Jesus Christ for my salvation. I've even proclaimed the gospel to others. And I've received the, the Holy Spirit. I claim He helps me to overcome the sin in my life. So I'm uh, using myself as this example of a, uh, of a Christian, okay? Now suppose I were to fall into some sinful practice. Not just a, a single sin, but uh, 
a sinful practice in my life. Suppose, for example, uh, I were to have an affair. I were to commit the sin of adultery. Or for that matter, suppose I were to continually indulge in any kind of sexual sin, and I use sexual sin for a purpose. Hopefully you'll see it. Now that sin would be difficult for the church, me as the pastor, and devastating for my wife. It would hurt her to the core of her being. It would say to her that, that I'm not satisfied with her. I'm not satisfied with our relationship, that I need something or someone else, that she's not good enough for me, that, that she does not meet my needs. And that would be a terrible and destructive, dishonoring sin against my wife. But because of who God is, and because of who I am, a self-proclaimed Christian, it would be an even greater sin against him. Because I would be saying to the world that my creator, the the all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe, the one who gave me, us, his word, the one who I say I trust in for my salvation, the one who gave me his spirit to overcome the sin in my life, the one who sent his son to die on the cross for my sins. By my sin, I would be saying God's provision for me is not sufficient. I would be saying I don't value God's word or God's will. I don't value his command against adultery, against sexual immorality. I don't value his instruction in Ephesians chapter 5, if you're familiar with that, on loving my wife as Christ loved the church. I don't trust that God knows what he's talking about. I don't believe that he knows what's best for me. I'm doing something else. I don't have the faith that I can find satisfaction in him and who he's provided for me. All of that would be dishonoring to God. That would bring great dishonor to the name of God. That would be falling short of the glory of God. And what we need to see is that whenever we sin, especially when we believe we are somehow free to sin because we rely on the gospel of grace, no matter what that sin is, we are dishonoring God. We are saying to ourselves and to the world that we don't value God's wisdom. We don't value God's word. We don't value God's will. When we sin, we're saying we don't trust God. We're saying that we know better than he does. Every time we sin, we dishonor the Lord. And it's my prayer for myself and for each and every person here that we we come to terms with this sobering truth. That we see sin more than some minor uh, error in judgment, more than some little faux pas, more than a wrong against a finite unrighteous, unrighteous humanity, but that we see sin as an affront to the, uh, an affront to a dishonoring of the infinitely holy and righteous God, and that this realization would drive us, uh, especially if we're uh, stuck in some kind of uh, sinful practice, that this real realization would drive us, uh, let, me, let me be clear, would not drive us uh, to, to, to struggle and gain willpower to overcome this sin, but it would drive us to our knees 
that we Christians would turn to God in repentance, that we would cry out to him for forgiveness, that we would cry out to him and beg and entreat him for the power of his spirit to overcome the sin in our lives. That we would be so repelled by the idea of dishonoring our creator, our sustainer, our provider, our protector, our Lord and our Savior, that we might, instead of dishonoring him, seek to bring him glory and honor and praise. And how do we do that? That we might be a people that are are seen by the world as, oh, those people, they trust in God. You know, this this business deal, he could have made a ton of money if he had just fudged it a little bit, but, but he didn't. He trusts in God. He did what was right. He's satisfied with his relationship with God. He's satisfied with God's provision for his life. Those who continually reject the sinful pleasures of the world, that's what we need to be seen as. We need to be seen as people who shun evil and instead embrace all the joy and the pleasure and the satisfaction and the beauty that God offers through the gospel to those who fully submit to him. That's what Paul wanted. That's what Paul wanted in his day for the Gentiles. That's what Paul wanted in his day for his Jewish Jewish brethren. And that's what I want for us. That we would seek, we would shun evil and seek our joy and our satisfaction in the Lord. Would you pray with me to that end? Lord God, I pray for us. Lord, here today, As we hear your word, as we hear what it means to dishonor you, Lord, I pray you would convict our hearts. I pray that that spirit that you gave us when we trusted in your your son, Jesus Christ, when you gave us your Holy Spirit, I pray that that spirit would be alive in us now and would be convicting our hearts. If there are those here who are stuck in some sinful practice, Lord, I pray that spirit would convict. I pray they would be willing to fall on their knees and turn to you. Lord, but I pray for each of us as we go through our days Lord, as we so willingly give in to sin, not thinking about it, Lord, I pray that we would, we would realize that it dishonors your name and that would cause us to, to pause and to think and to turn to you and ask for your strength and your power to overcome. Lord, help us to be an example, not of those who, who claim to be Christians and yet don't really follow after you, but those who, who trust in you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.